I find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you from Luke's Gospel. When the war of Acts is awesome, it's either going to be an amazing evening or a very disappointing evening. Years ago, when I was at university, every year, every college would have a, a, a music extravaganza at the end of the year. They call it the extra. And they would book bands and the whole college would get together and celebrate the finish of all the exams and, and, and the end of the year. In my first year, the warm-up pact uh, to the star attraction was a Queen tribute band. And you know what? They were absolutely amazing. They were, uh, you know, it was, it was like they were there. It was incredible. People were dancing, everybody was singing along. It was amazing. It looked like it was going to be an awesome night. Unfortunately, the star attraction they booked was called Gina G. She was a one-hit wonder Eurovision singer who hadn't even had a hit in seven years at that point. She sang one song, <coughs> then left. And the whole night was a, was a real dance whip. The next year, they booked the Queen Tribute Act as the star attraction, and it was much better. But this morning, we're beginning our Christmas series in the book of Luke. And Luke, like my university extra, gives us a bit of a warm-up before he gets to the star attraction. Spoiler alert, the star attraction here is Jesus. This morning, we have the warm-up act for Jesus' birth story, the birth story of John the Baptist. And were it not that we knew that Jesus were coming, this story would be absolutely astounding in itself. And yet, we're going to see that this is just a warm-up. This is just preparing the way for something greater. There's a sense in which our passage this morning should leave us wanting something more. And that something more is what comes next, Jesus. But for now, we're going to see the incredibleness of this warm-up act that will not disappoint when the star attraction Appears. So first of all we see a model childless couple. Let me read to you those verses again, verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Luke begins his account not with Jesus, but with a man called Zachariah. We're given the historical context. It almost sounds like it could be out of the book of one or two kings in the Old Testament. In the days of King Herod, king of Judea. And yes, this is the famous Herod. Uh, Herod the Great, who the wise men visit, who orders the murder of the babies uh, in Bethlehem. And Herod really was a piece of work. The one good thing that he did was refurbish and expand the great temple in Jerusalem. But the more you look at him, the more you think this is really a PR exercise for him. He wasn't Jewish, he was an Edomite, he was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And his renovations wouldn't last very long. Less than a hundred years after he expanded the temple, it would be completely destroyed by the Romans, partly due to the actions of Herod's own children who ruled the area after him. But it was in this temple that Zacharias served. He was a descendant of Abijah, and so uh, that was one of the divisions. There were 24 divisions of priests, uh, and uh, by this point in history, there were so many priests in Aaron's line that there were 24 divisions, 
and they take it in turns weekly to serve in the temple. The descendants of Abijah are one of those divisions. We're told that he was married to Elizabeth, another descendant of Aaron, we're told. Her name is even the Greek version of Aaron's wife, Elisheba, I think that's probably right. But it wasn't obligatory for the priests to marry within their clan. So this is very much sort of emphasising the priestliness of both of them. They're the real deal. They're the true line of Aaron. And Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, uh, though Mary is the line of Judah. You might be sort of wondering how that works. But that's because, as we said, they weren't obliged to marry within their tribes. So Mary's almost certainly got some Levite blood in her. Her mother, if Mary and Elizabeth are first cousins, uh, would be a Levite. Uh, it could be further back if they're second cousins, it can mean that as well. The thing that's significant about them, though, that we're told, is that they were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in his commands and statutes. Now, that doesn't mean that they were morally perfect. It doesn't mean that they never sinned. This is the language that's used of Abraham and the patriarchs in the Old Testament. We're going to see a lot of Abraham and patriarchs as we go through. Abraham, too, was called righteous, righteous by faith. Abraham is told in Genesis uh, 1, uh, sorry, Genesis 17, verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Again, that idea of walking blamelessly. Now, Abraham, we were do, we've been doing Genesis with the kids, we've seen Abraham is not perfect. What it does mean is that he has a living relationship with the living God, one that did translate into action. Speaking to Isaac, God says this, I will multiply your offspring, as the stars in the heavens, I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. You see how it's sort of similar language to what it's talking about here? And that was even before the law was given. So right as Luke starts his gospel, here are a couple like Abraham and Sarah. Righteous, blameless in their walk before God. And yet, like Abraham and Sarah, unable to conceive. They have no child. And now we're told, <laughs> quite politely, Elizabeth is advanced in years. It's sort of the polite way of saying that she's old, isn't it? But whilst it sounds like Sarah, Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. Assuming that Zachariah and Elizabeth are, are roughly the same age, she can be probably only around 50. Uh, since priests retired at 15. They started at 30, retired at 50. Must have had a really good union, uh, I reckon. <laughs> but the point still stands. Luke wants us to see that she's been unable to conceive all her adult life. She is like Sarah in that way. And she's now probably menopausal. It would seem as though they've missed their chance. But we're not supposed to see this as a punishment from God or anything like that. They live in a broken world, and even our bodies grow old, don't they? They're broken and they can't always do what we would love them to do. And even though they don't know it, God is going to use their childlessness to produce a miracle. Had Elizabeth not been able to, uh, not been able to conceive all those years, we would never have seen the miracle of the birth of John the Baptist for what it was. It must have been hard for them month after month, year after year, but little did they know that God was using this in his big plan. Now, I don't want to imply that a miracle is always around the corner in these kinds of situations. 
But it is always true that God is working out his plan, even if we can't see it. Zachariah and Elizabeth no doubt thought that this was all over. They missed their chance. But God had other plans. And God steps in. So point two, a message about a messenger. Let me read to you just a few verses from verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell, uh, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, shall bear a son and you shall call his name John. Zachariah was sent into the temple to perform his duty of burning incense on the altar of incense in the temple. And if you were here last week, yes, it just so happens it is that altar that we were talking about last week in the book of Exodus. And we see here again it's linked with prayer. During the hour of incense, the people prayed outside. As Zachariah does this, his prayer is answered. As we said, there were a lot of priests at this point. And we said that they'd be chosen by lot to serve in the temple. But we know, of course, every decision like that is God's. He put the right person there at the right time. And while Zechariah is burning incense, an angel of the Lord appears to him, standing at the right-hand side of the altar. And Zechariah is terrified. Now again, if you've been following uh, through the Exodus series, you'll probably know a little bit of why. We've been learning uh, in Exodus that the angels were pictured on the veil that separated off the most holy place. And there was supposed to be a sort of heavenly security force cordoning off the Holy of Holies and preventing people from going in there lest they should die. Now it might be that Zachariah thinks that he's performed something wrong, that he's done something wrong, and now the angel is going to come and get him. It's curtains for him, pun intended. But the angel brings good news. He repeats to him the most repeated command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. It's most repeated because it's the one we most often need to hear, isn't it? It's good news, he says. His wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby. And we're told that there'll be joy and gladness and rejoicing at his birth. Now, of course, nearly every child's birth is an occasion for joy and gladness and rejoicing. But the fact that the angel mentions it means it's something bigger. And what follows is a sort of mishmash of promises and commands made to couples having difficulty having children in the Old Testament. We're told he will be great, not as in super smashing great, but great as in Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great, the Great Wall of China. This child is going to be a huge deal. He's going to be renowned. He's going to be great, as in when God tells Abraham he will make his name great. Jesus will go on to say later in Matthew 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. What a claim to make. Among those born in the normal way, nobody has been born greater than John. Now think about that for a second. Not Moses. Not Abraham, not Isaiah, not King David, not Solomon, not Elijah, Elisha, Ezra, Nehemiah. 
No, John is the greatest figure. Who's the greatest figure before Jesus? According to Jesus, John the Baptist. And yet, he also goes on to say that he pales in insig- into insignificance compared to Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in that verse, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one who has been born again into the kingdom is greater than John, the greatest man who ever lived up until this point. But what a promise. He will be great. And he was greater than all those who had gone before him, John the Baptist. And he's given that name by the angel, John. This is uh, uh, will also happen with Mary. But remember, this also happens with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17. Isaac is also named by God. Here, his name is John, which means God is gracious. Gracious as in shows grace and mercy. Now, unlike Zachariah and Elizabeth, whose names have a great pedigree in the Old Testament, there are no Johns in the Old Testament. Now, in a culture where families kept names alive by passing them down, this was very strange. The point is made later on in the chapter that that's not what should normally happen. But both mother and father insist that his name will be John. So there's a message in his name. God will be gracious, will be merciful to his people. The third thing we're told is that he will not drink wine or strong drink. This is what the angel of the Lord told Samson's mother in Judges 13. Not because there's anything wrong with alcohol, but because with Samson he would be a Nazarite from birth. That was somebody who was set apart for the Lord's service. And it involved not touching anything made with grapes and not cutting your hair. Hence the Samson story with his long hair. It gives the impression that John will be a sort of Old Testament judge for the people, almost like a Samson figure. Linked with that, we're told that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would fill someone to equip them for the work that they had to do. The makers of the tabernacle, we're told, for example, would be equipped by God, would be filled with the Spirit to do that work. Micah, uh, the prophet, is filled with the Spirit to preach repentance to the people. John would be equipped from birth, pre-birth even, for the tasks that God had given him. And verses 16 and 17 explain uh, what that is. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That part there is almost a word-from-word quote from an Old Testament prophet, Malachi. This is what he wrote. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Do you see the connection with what we're saying about John? The angel wants us to see that this child will be the fulfilment of this prophecy. That he will be the Elijah figure that is prophesied here to arrive before the day of the Lord begins. And if we're left in any doubt, Jesus tells us exactly that in Matthew 11. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who challenged the whole nation, who took on the wicked king Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel. 
And if you think about it, John will go on to do much the same thing, challenging the king and his wife. And it will cost him his life. But also we see in the Gospels, he'll dress like Elijah. He'll live in the wilderness like Elijah. But the main thing is he will preach like Elijah. He will preach that the nation must repent, must turn, must change their hearts and their actions and come back to God. He will institute something up until now unseen in the Jewish nation, baptism. He will prepare people by washing them. He brings in a baptism as a sign of repentance, as a new start of a fresh leaf. The closest you get to this in the Old Testament of baptism is Naaman, who uh, is told by Elisha to wash himself in the river to be cured of his unclean leprosy. Non-Jews would sometimes be washed in a similar way before converting to Judaism to sort of wash off all their old Gentile muck as they would see it. But a Jew being baptised, that was unheard of until John. But he would bring that in, he would prepare the nation with his baptism of repentance. This would be no ordinary child. But just to clarify, John was not Elijah in the literal sense. He did not drop back out of heaven, out of the whirlwind that took him up there. Nor was he a reincarnation of Elijah. The Bible knows nothing of any of that kind of thing. When John the Baptist says in John 1 that he's not Elijah, he's not lying. But he was the Elijah that was to come. And that puts the whole of Luke's gospel and what follows in a very different light. The appearing of this Elijah figure spoken of in Malachi, he was supposed to signal the end of the world, the day of the Lord. That's something huge to get announced to you, isn't it? If if that's who John is to be. So Zechariah is hit with this double whammy of shocking truth. You will have a son, that's shock number one. And shock number two is he will prepare the nation for the end of the ages. Now that sounds quite dramatic, but the Bible speaks of our time like that in Hebrews 9 and 1 Corinthians 10, but that's a whole other sermon. But what would you do with news like that? Well, our final point, Zechariah is left speechless. Have a look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak of you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah asked for proof. Now you might think this is crazy, given that he's just been spoken to by an angel of the Lord. But it fits with this repeating of the Old Testament pattern for couples who have struggled to conceive. After God repeats his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, he includes the promise for the first time specifically that he will have a son who will possess the land. Abraham says this. But he says, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, how do I know that this will happen? Now again, God had just spoken to him. You think, why would he ask that? But Abraham gets a covenant uh, made with him, a covenant ceremony where God pledges to keep the promises unilaterally. Zachariah, on the other hand, gets struck dumb uh, by the angel. Maybe Zachariah thought he'd get a similar treatment to Abraham, you know, something really special. But no, the angel reveals himself as Gabriel, 
the angel who had appeared to Daniel during the Jews' exile in Babylon, the revealer of mysteries to God's people, an angel who stands in the very presence of God. And he is here to bring good news. It literally reads, I am here to evangelize you. That's the words. To bring you good news. But Zachariah doesn't believe. He disbelieves the good news. He doesn't just want extra evidence. He doesn't believe it. And so he's struck dumb until the child is born. Now there may be an echo here of the 400 years of prophetic silence that preceded the angel's appearance. God had not spoken from the time of Malachi's last prophecy that we read just before until he will speak through John and the events that follow. John uh, is is struck dumb, he can't speak. Outside the people are waiting. Apparently the burning of incense, uh, I looked at this week, is the first job of the day. So the sacrifices couldn't go on without it. It's one of those things where it's that awkward situation where you're waiting for, like when you're leaving the house and you're waiting for one person uh, to sort of get ready to go. Perhaps you don't have that situation at your house, we do sometimes hours. Um, but they're waiting for him to come out. He's been an unusually uh, long time. But Zachariah comes out unable to speak. And the people realise that he's had a vision. Something incredible has happened. And he tries to explain, but he can't speak. And I think, in my head, it sort of works out like one of those really awkward games of charades. You know, he's trying to explain that he's had a vision from an angel. You know, one word sounds like angle. Angle? Uh, No, tangle? Zachariah finishes his time, we're told, in service at the temple, and then he heads home. They know that he's had a vision. He tells his wife, presumably, as well, what's going on. And soon after, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. But she hides the pregnancy for five months. Uh, The words Elizabeth speaks uh, are very close to the words that Rachel speaks when she conceives Joseph again after struggling to conceive. So she conceived and bore a son, uh, saying, God has taken away my reproach. Rachel, of course, had trouble conceiving, and then in the end went to have Joseph, who, spoiler alert for the kids' talk, is going to go on to rescue his people. But why does she hide the pregnancy? But we're not told. But it seems linked to her reproach being taken away. Perhaps at that point, five months later, it'd be undeniable that she was pregnant. There were no pregnancy tests in those days. If you'd have suggested it beforehand, perhaps she'd have opened herself up to more scorn. Oh yeah, she thinks she's pregnant. Oh yeah, whatever. But when she went public five months later, it would be undeniable. God had worked a miracle. And going public meant that Mary too could find out when she went to visit a month later. The angel will mention it to Mary as evidence that miraculous things are afoot. Because after all, Mary, Joseph and Jesus, well that's where this is all heading, isn't it? They are the star attraction. They are the ones this is building towards. But we can make a mistake here, can't we? We can get so caught up in this story that we forget that that's where it's all going. This is all but junior G uh, to what follows. Because we can make Jesus less than the star attraction as well, can't we? The world wants to put him on a par with Moses and Muhammad and Buddha. Even sometimes in churches, he's made just another Bible character, alongside a host of others, all roughly equal. You know, this week it's Jacob, next week it's Jeremiah, and the week after it's Jesus. But it's not like that in the Bible. Jesus is what the whole thing is pointing towards. Jesus is what John is pointing towards. 
You even go with things like Saints Day, don't you? It can give that impression. John the Baptist Day is the 24th of June. Michaelmas is the 29th of September. Christmas is December 25th. It's just like another day in a, in a list of other days. But it's really not the case. Really, every day is Jesus' day. When we look at things biblically, that 1970s group wizards finally get what they've been singing about for 50 years. Because basically, it really is Christmas every day. Because every day is all about him. Every day is Saviour's Day, if you're more of a Cliff Richard fan. But there's a challenge here to us then, isn't there? If Jesus really is the big deal that this is just building towards, if every day really is about him... Are each of our days about him? Is it Christmas Day every day in the right way for us? Is each of our days a day devoted to Jesus? Devoting our days to other things. It's like getting so popular from John that we forget that actually he's there to point to someone else. He's just the warmer act. And every thing, person, object, pursuit, passion or pastime is as nothing compared to him. So is your life about Jesus? If it isn't, make it so today. Don't get caught up in the warmer packs of the world and so caught up that you miss the main attraction. John points us to Jesus. John's birth points us to Jesus' birth. And we're going to find out more about that tonight. But until now, um, just for now, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this story of John the Baptist's birth. Father, thank you for all the miraculous things that you did for Elizabeth and Zachariah. But Father, help us to remember that they were just the beginning. Father, they were just building up to Jesus. And Father, may our lives, may our days be about him. Uh, Father, may we, like John, point to him with all that we have and all that we do. That we might uh, worship him, but also see others follow him as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.